Hello, folks. Dr. Maurice Selby here, medical director, producer, and co-host of Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM and the Health in Harlem podcast. While we strive to bring you the most up-to-date, reliable, evidence-based information to help you live the healthiest life possible, this show does not substitute for an evaluation by a trained and licensed medical professional. It is highly recommended that any advice or recommendations on medications, treatments, nutrition, fitness, preventive services, etc. be implemented under the guidance and supervision of your primary medical provider or appropriate specialist. With that said, we hope that you enjoy and learn from our program, and please be sure to let us know how we can best serve you in future shows. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen of the listening audience. My name is Maurice Selby. And I'm Giorgio Malouf. And you're listening to the the one and only Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM New York, the voice of Harlem, and the Health in Harlem podcast featured on Spotify, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon. We're pretty much everywhere these days, ladies and gentlemen. And also we have with us uh, our guest, well, She's joining us. She's just hanging out with us. Uh, Doris Hansen, a physician assistant, um, actually visiting from our neighbors in Canada. And she's just hanging out with us, ladies and gentlemen. So welcome, Doris. Hi, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> welcome, P.A. Hansen. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, ladies and gentlemen, I have been a talking head for the last couple of weeks mm-hmm. talking about this COVID business. We just did a vaccine update uh, number six last week. You heard me talking about that um, and where we are. Um, definitely some reasons to be optimistic. I've seen some good data coming out, and still that is the case as we see hospitalizations decreasing, death rates decreasing all throughout the country. We see the number of vaccinations throughout the country increasing. Uh, I would say that that's a good thing because I think one of the things that explains those falling death rates and hospitalization rates and complication rates are the vaccines themselves. Up to this point, ladies and gentlemen, we have more than 330 million doses delivered, more than 260 million doses administered. This corresponds to at least one dose given to 46.4% of the population here in the United States fully vaccinated, we have 35.4%. So we are slowly climbing, slowly but surely climbing as far as uh, those vaccination rates. And when we look at actually, really importantly, the ages, right, for those 65 years and older, at least one dose, 84%, right, that got at least one dose. And then as far as fully vaccinated in that group, 65 and older, 71.9% fully vaccinated fully vaccinated. That means after their second dose of either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines, or at least one Johnson and Johnson administration, that is they are fully vaccinated individuals and 71.9%. And when we look at those death rates and those hospitalization rates, right, especially when we talk about some of the hardest hit populations in this country, 
the elderly, especially those in nursing, skilled nursing facilities, nursing homes, uh, we saw those those rates drop dramatically. And there's only one thing that makes sense in that explanation. So I'm going to start off on a positive note, man. Yeah. With all of that said. It's been a long time coming. And uh, I'm, I'm taking a look at the types of vaccines were, that were administered. It mm-hmm. seems like uh, Pfizer is, is beating out Moderna by just a little bit. And those two are definitely leading the race. Not to say that any of them are, either of them are, are more or less effective. Uh, mm-hmm. All three are recommended uh, by the FDA and have emergency use uh, authorization. Uh, have been shown to be safe and effective through uh, hundreds of thousands of people in clinical trials and now millions in, in, in real data uh, results. Um, but it's it's really interesting to to see the rollout, uh, mm-hmm. looking at the maps, and and I didn't think that this day would come where we're looking at the the, the caseload, and the curve is actually having a negative slope. Like cases in the in the U.S. in the last uh, thirty days, we're starting to see that uh, it's on the down on the decline, uh, which is uh, which is awesome that we're finally there. We, we, I we think we are turning a corner. And and the thing yeah. is, Giorgio, what's so dope is that this is not just here, right? If we look overseas, for instance, a great example being Israel and just pause for the crisis that they're going through right now. Um, I just want to send out my, my prayers and, you know, considering everything that's happening at this moment. But when we look, let's just focus on their vaccination program, their campaign at this point, um, they were very aggressive, Right. Right. Um, Inoculating people. I mean, they were just very aggressive, very efficient. And we saw in real time the benefits of that for that country, because exactly just what you stated as far as those death rates. Right. Seeing that downward trend. It looks so beautiful on the graph compared to what we (laughs) were seeing last year um, with all of those rates sort of going up. And it was a very scary time. Right. We still have some concerns at this point. But looking at even what happened in Israel, as soon as they started that max mass vaccination program, we saw the death rates um, and hospitalization rates there begin to plummet. And they actually published uh, that data in the New England Journal of Medicine. And you can see a huge I mean, there's a definitely a discrepancy, right? The between the group that was not vaccinated um, or the pop- the amount of population that was not vaccinated and the vaccinated, you can see that there's a divergence, right? You begin to see that, unfortunately, those that did not receive the vaccine, there were higher rates of COVID-19 diagnoses made. Um, and then we just saw, again, that curve flatten out and even begin to decline amongst those that were vaccinated. And so just as you said, this is something that is effective, uh, and it is also very safe. Uh, right. And and that, and that's another thing that makes me really excited is that we are now, let me see if I can chart my vaccine. I got vaccinated in early December. I think it was December 9th, man. I should know this date because that oh, was a big wow. deal. You, I you felt were, like, yeah, you were one of yeah. the doctors. Yep. And uh, right before, yeah, it was right before Christmas that I got my second dose. And yeah. You know, up to this point, I have been now I'll tell you after I got those shots. Right. I did feel achy. I definitely had a little local um, discomfort where the, where the shot was administered after the second shot. I remember having a fever briefly, had some a headache, 
and yeah, I felt like garbage, <laughs> I would say. Yeah. So I'm gonna be frank with that, right? These are very real uh, side effects of the, the vaccine, but that was very brief in duration. And shortly after that, I went back to my usual. Um, actually, I fell off big time this week. I'm not going to front. Uh, but last week and, and up until this point uh, from November of last year to now, I had been running, you know, uh, upwards of 20 miles per week. And that did not change. I still feel the same. Uh, and my confidence in this vaccine, I'm just going to lay this out at the beginning of the show, ladies and gentlemen. Right. We tell you on this program, we have no other agenda for you. Right. I'm not a salesman. Giorgio's not a salesman. Although we might be charming and handsome and somewhat <laughs> persuasive. I know, right? I'm messing up. Oh. But, but no, we're not salespeople. We have no conflicts of interest or investments in any of these companies producing these vaccines. What we strive to do is just give you good information on this program, good, reliable, factual, right? Factually based uh, information so that you can make the best decision for yourself. And I will... With that, with that said, I will say that I think I made the best decision for myself in accepting this vaccine and probably the best decision for my family uh, and community as a whole. And just of note, Christine, actually, my wife, she got her vaccine. So she's two weeks out from her second dose as of last Thursday. Um, actually, this is her, her three weeks out. We got to celebrate yeah. tonight. Hey. So she's fully vaccinated. And I'm telling you, it's a world of a difference, right? There's a certain level of as I said, confidence, relief, freedom. Yes. Yeah. Relief that comes with it. Relief. Yeah. And I've been running outside with no mask, which, you know, according to the CDC, that is something that I can safely do now based on what we know, based on the data, right. That is that we have up to this point. And it was liberating running out there like that. So I'm sure <sighs> I know I'm getting all soppy and stuff. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I, I think that it's, uh, it's well deserved. We we didn't know when that light in, at the end of the tunnel was going to finally shine through. So mm. uh, I think that we should get emotional about it. Um, I'm I'm still waiting for another week to get my second dose. Um, but yeah, I walked up to a New York City um, run vaccination site. Uh, had no idea which vaccine I was going to get. Uh, didn't have an appointment even. I, I did it right after they... Uh, announced that the, the mayor announced that all New York City um, run sites were now on a walk on walk in basis uh, mm. as well. So I wanted to test it out, uh, went in there, got vaccinated, got the Moderna shot. Um, and yeah, I mean, definitely some discomfort initially um, in my shoulder area locally. Um, but then the more that I moved it around, uh, which the CDC does recommend, um, and the more, more hydrated that I was, I felt like, uh, the, the symptoms kind of relieved themselves within, uh, two days maximum. And then after that, it was, um, so no extra it, toes it, it, grown, no, no, uh, no okay. 5g activation, no 5d, act no, <laughs> no, or maybe superhuman strength. Maybe you got some other benefits from it. Do you feel? It might be oh, you smile. Look at your smile. It's brighter, I think. <laughs> it's brighter. Yeah, we need it a might video, be, it might need be a video cast so they can yeah. see you, how radiant you look after uh, having you, been Mo. vaccinated. Mo. <laughs> <laughs> Mo, Mo woke up today and decided to gas me up. But uh, yeah, you're a character. I, I'll, I'll return the favor. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> but, it's, it, you know, and that's the thing, um, ladies and gentlemen, in 
right? In this whole thing, um, there is, as we said, a certain level of, like I said, confidence that I think we must really appreciate with this. And even from the standpoint of where we are in human history, right? For a crisis like this to happen internationally, uh, at the speed that it happened, at the time that it happened, we are rather fortunate to have been at this point in our technological history, right? To have something like this where we can combat this illness. And, you know, despite the fact that we had uh, through social distancing and right and all of these measures to flatten the curve, I think we definitely made some inroads in getting control of this, especially in New York City. Uh, last spring, from what we saw, it was an ac- absolute disaster. But once everybody banded together, wore masks, employed social distancing, we were better about our hand hygiene, just very cognizant. We And we took a break, right, as far as our usual uh, hustle and bustle in the city, and we were able to get a better handle on this crisis. Well, this is the same thing with this vaccine, uh, with the vaccines that we have available in that really it's going to be all of us sort of banding together because the more people that get this vaccine, right, the, the more likely that we will continue to see this trend uh, as far as really getting control of this virus. Um, and so it's just very important that we really think about this uh, as we go forward. So if you have not been vaccinated, right, it is important that we really understand this decision and how not only it would impact you, but also those around you. So your relatives, um, people in your household, your community, and then at the societal level, right, potentially eradicating COVID. Uh, And with that said, now I I get into the more somber note of this because uh, there are some experts that, right, because of things like vaccine hesitancy, um, they fear that we might not be able to, to get to that point of herd immunity and absolutely crushing this illness, especially as we see uh, the variants that are starting to crop up right all around us. We see this one particular variant, uh, B1617, over in India, causing tremendous, um, you know, just adding to the crisis there. And I just want to send out our regards and, and prayers to them uh, as they're struggling uh, at this point. But that is a reality that we have to deal with. Uh, we have B117 here in the United States, which seems to be more contagious. But, you know, there are probably other ones that are developing as we speak, because each and every time that somebody uh, is infected with this virus, that is another chance for the more variants to crop up that can be more difficult to control, that might not be as responsive to these vaccinations. So that, therefore, it is a race against time. So if you are sitting on the fence trying to make this decision, I'm hoping that uh, we'll be able to help you out in that regard with some of the information that we are going to get into um, on this program. Yeah, man. So definitely some cause for excitement, right? But we still have a ways yeah. to go. Um, we have about a third of uh, about 30% of adults, American adults that still are hesitant when it comes to the vaccine. I will say, and I, I don't know if if you've seen the same thing, Giorgio, but I, I definitely have seen an improvement when it comes to people of African descent, right? Um, African-Americans, um, blacks in general. In my practice in the emergency department down here in Georgia, I've seen an improvement, a significant improvement in, yeah. in individuals' attitudes or at least how they think about and view 
these vaccines. And there's been a few times where I was actually surprised uh, one individual that actually had symptoms very much consistent with COVID. And, you know, we're talking about everything. I'm sort of counseling him and talking about how to how to get through this and support himself so that he can beat the virus. Right. And then at the end, I was like, well, do you plan to get vaccinated? Right. Um, after you're through with this, do you plan to get vaccinated? And I was astonished. He was like, absolutely. And actually, this person had planned to get vaccinated before they got sick. It was just they were having difficulty um, getting access to the vaccine. And I was shocked. Um, I was shocked. This was a, a, a black man that I was talking to and or taking care of at that time. And I was astonished. And from that point on, it was, you know, multiple times I try to inject this into the conversation or in taking care of my patients, just see where people are at as far as making this decision. Was and that a pun? Time and t- was that What's a pun up? that you just slid in there? You're, you're injecting things into conversation? Oh, yo, I didn't even catch that. That was dope. <laughs> that was totally not intentional. So, <laughs> but yes, I try to I try to get that in there, right? I try to inject this whole vaccine business into my interactions with my patients. And I've been um, pleasantly surprised that a lot of people are, if they have not already gotten it, they have been thinking about uh, getting it. They've been had the intent that, hey, I'm going to get it. I'm just trying to find my way there and navigate the system, which now it is widely available even here in Georgia, um, where you can walk up and get it at at, uh, some of the mass vaccination sites. And yes, uh, and then those that might maybe still be uh, might be a little hesitant. They have questions that imply that they are still open. Right. I think we can still possibly get them information that will make them uh, therefore. And this is not a, a game of persuasion. Right. But. They are open to the information that is out there um, in making this decision to get vaccinated or not. And so I think we are in a, you know, a, a, a place where we can still make some inroads and really take advantage of this intervention so that it works for not only each and every person individually, but as I said, at the societal level in squashing this virus. That is the key. I hate COVID. And, and so... <laughs> So, Mo, what what is that that herd immunity threshold? So there are varying estimates. There are some experts that are quoting 70 percent of the population being inoculated or vaccinated. There are some that quote higher um, percentages of the population, especially when we think about some of the variants that are starting to emerge and how those variants can be more communicable or more uh, contagious, if you will. Right. And so or or at least they spread easily, more easily. And so those thresholds might be increased when we talk about those variants. We might need a larger population, larger percentage of the population to be vaccinated in order to stop the spread of this illness. Uh, Because one thing I do want to say, right, although we see the hospitalization, hospitalization rates falling um, totally. Right. When we look at the total number of hospitalizations in the country, we see them falling when we look at the death rates, we see them falling, but the disease is still spreading, right? COVID is still spreading right now. That's one thing I want to be, because I think right now there is sort of this air out there or belief that, hey, we've won the game, right? Everybody's sort of opening up and getting back to normal. Everybody's vacationing and flying and stuff, which is great, but we are still not out of the woods. This virus is still spreading. And especially when we look at populations that have not 
had such high vaccination rates. So younger individuals, um, we see those rates actually increased amongst those groups, right? Whereas before it was the opposite. We saw the elderly uh, very much impacted people with uh, a lot of chronic medical problems uh, like hypertension, diabetes, obesity. Um, They were being hospitalized and having complications at higher rates. Now we see the reverse, right? Uh, In those populations that have been where a, a good number of those groups have been vaccinated, we see those death rates and hospitalization rates falling, but younger groups, right? 18 to 50 years of age, those groups that we don't have the highest vaccination rates um, in, those are the groups where we see the hospitalization rates actually increasing. So Mo, do you think, I, I know this is probably just speculation, but um, do you think that those more resistant age groups of let's say 18 to 39, which have been shown mm-hmm. to have the highest caseloads, the lowest vaccination rates, um, do you think that's just the lag in the vaccine rollout that caused that? Or do you think that it's it's actually because of vaccine hesitancy and those age groups are feeling like, oh, I could I could manage even if I do get it versus older uh, age groups feeling like they absolutely need to go get it uh, because, because they're so vulnerable. Yeah, because I mean, it's it's interesting to, to kind of understand the the psychology behind the people um, mm-hmm. getting in the populations uh, like for instance male um, if we were to break down the population vaccinated by gender uh, females are at 50.4 percent in New York State mm-hmm. and males are at 45.5 so um, there's five percent less uh, males when we look at that breakdown and then when we look at the age groups um, from 16 to 25 has approximately 40% vaccination rate uh, for, for re- having received at least one dose. And mm-hmm. then we, we go up to the more vulnerable groups and we're seeing um, 71.6% from 55 to 64. We're seeing 83.4% from 65 to 74. Mm-hmm. Again, this is for uh, New York State. But I'm sure that the the trend kind of can be generalized to most of uh, the to many locations in the country. Yeah. yeah. So, do you think it's because they don't want to get vaccinated, or is it more of the availability just starting to open up to them? I think it's a, a combination of both, um, especially at the outset. Right, it was very limited in its availability um, for those groups. So, yes, we saw a higher number of groups or a higher number, right, of seniors vaccinated um, just because that's who it was available for. Um, and so the rates are higher right now just because I think, as you said, that there's a lag, right? But then there is a certain amount of hesitancy um, and even unwillingness to get the vaccine that I think contributes to the lower rates in younger individuals and in individuals with less medical problems because the risk-benefit analysis is different for those groups. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we talk about younger individuals with no medical problems, right? Uh, And we talk about the potential risks of vaccines, which we've talked about on this show, there are real risks with vaccination. Uh, Everything from the adverse effects that you might experience, right? The inconvenience of being put on your behind for a day um, 
or two after being vaccinated, which I really was like, I didn't do my runs and stuff. I was just like, y'all, thank God I was off work because um, <laughs> I was kind of floored a little bit. I mean, I was still able to do some stuff, but I was, you know, just not feeling like Maurice Donovan Selby um, 100%. And so, right, that's an inconvenience. That is discomfort that people experience after being vaccinated. And also when we consider other risks, anaphylaxis, right, these severe allergic reactions, which very, very rare, ladies and gentlemen, very rare. Um, when we talk about more complex immune mediated uh, potential reactions, which again is very, very rare. We're talking hitting the lottery after being struck by lightning, rare, right? Uh, when we talk about those risks and people doing this risk benefit analysis, if you're younger with no medical problems, and we know that younger individuals with no medical problems, right, they are more likely to have milder forms of this disease and not really have complications. And so the risk benefit analysis is not as clear as for the 80 year old with hypertension, diabetes, and maybe have a little extra weight on them, right? The benefit for that individual is we know that that individual is likely going to benefit because if they get COVID, they will are more, much more likely to have a bad complication versus the 25 year old with no medical problems. But I will say that this is a disease, ladies and gentlemen, that we know, right, affects um, although not at, as, as high rates, um, we've definitely had a number of young people with complications from COVID-19 uh, infection. And they range from, you know, the complications of respiratory failure. Um, we talk about seeing individuals with new onset kidney uh, issues. I've seen uh, quite a, a few young people with myocarditis or inflammation of their heart resultant from, I mean, and the only thing that explains it is, hey, it sounds like you had COVID before or you tested positive for COVID and I think it's affected their heart. Uh, and so, and, and also long or? COVID. Um, and those, and that's the thing, right? There are, some of these complications are long-term. People are living with these um, residual effects of the virus, um, especially when we talk about long COVID, right? Long hauler syndrome or long COVID individuals that have these really persistent symptoms after having had a COVID-19 diagnosis, right? So they're walking around with breathlessness. We have individuals reporting this really bad brain fog where they just cannot um, concentrate or function optimally, right? They're having some cognitive uh, issues uh, resultant from the infection. Um, individuals with chronic fatigue up to this point and to the point where these people are not able to get back to their normal function uh, for day to day, right? I have a, a colleague actually that has not been able to uh, come back to work fully at 100%, right? Like they used to be because they they have long hauler syndrome. Uh, and, and this is months. We're talking, you know, more than six to seven months after that initial infection for that individual, actually more than that, more time than that. So there are very real risks amongst younger people, but the risk benefit analysis, right? Um, I think that's part of the hesitancy amongst younger groups and why we see a, a, a greater number of individuals not rushing to get vaccinated in those younger groups just because they're more likely to get through this without having those complications. So that's part of it. It's a, I think it's a, a sort of both factoring, factoring, factoring in for those groups. That makes total sense. And speaking of getting younger kids and, um, younger adults vaccinated, 
there is a new development this week that uh, we actually wanted to discuss on the show. Um, so the FDA has just uh, released an update on on the COVID nineteen vaccine by authorizing Pfizer BioNTech um, uh, the the Pfizer uh, BioNTech uh, COVID nineteen vaccine for emergency use authorization in adults. Um, in adolescents, I'm sorry, from 12 to 15 years of age. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a, a new development that came after um, effectiveness data that they collected from clinical trials involving a little bit over a thousand uh, vaccine recipients from the ages of 12 through 15. And uh, they compared the immune responses of the participants. Um, to, to participants who received the placebo and uh, the vaccine was shown to, to be 100% effective in these Wait, participants. Say uh, that again. <laughs> um, so 100. One, one zero zero. They kept That's it 100. 100% um, uh, effective in preventing COVID-19. Uh, you know, albeit in a, in a more limited data set, uh, but I mean, it's not... It's not a, a small data set. It's it's not huge, mm-hmm. but but it definitely should demonstrate that uh, it's a lot closer to a hundred than it is yes. to being non-effective. Um, yes, yes. And and, and the and, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the breakdown is just amazing, um, right? This was two thousand two hundred sixty participants, aged twelve to fifteen years, in an ongoing randomized placebo-controlled clinical trial here in the United States. So this is still an ongoing study, but this is some preliminary data that was released. Um, Just as Giorgio said, uh, over 1,000 or over 1,100 in the experimental group. And then there was another 1,100 in the placebo group. And in that experimental group, right, um, out of 1,005 vaccine participants, so in that experimental group, 1,005 vaccine participants there were no cases of COVID-19 in that group, right? No cases. When we look at the placebo group, there was 978 participants that received the placebo. In that group, 16 participants were diagnosed with COVID-19. And so this is a rarity in medicine. Now, you're right. Georgia's right. It's a limited data set, right? Um, And as we said, this is an ongoing trial. There's more data to come. Uh, and as we see higher numbers of participants in these studies, we probably will see a few COVID-19 diagnoses in that experimental group. But uh, but let's just relish that 100% <laughs> result right now. It just sounds It's nice to last. Yeah. Yes. It's a perfect credit score. It's a perfect yeah, yeah, perfect it's credit like... score, GPA, whatever. It's just a nice for it to be that effective. Um, and they, and as far as they even looked at the immune responses of 170 participants and they compared them to right individuals in that 16 to 25 years of age. Uh, and, and they actually had very similar um, or they quoted it as, quote unquote, non-inferior immune responses. Basically, they're saying that they saw uh, these 12 to 15 year olds generate essentially the same immune response uh, as that group 16 to 25 years of age. 
at least as good as at least as, as good as yeah <laughs> um in science speak basically that that just means that hey their, their <laughs> immune system responded just like that 16 to 25 age group and this is huge not only right because um of how effective uh the vaccine is but we know that this group 12 to 15 years of age right there are studies looking at younger children right now um school age children uh, but when we look at adolescents, and one thing that that we learned was that very young children don't spread COVID as well. They can carry a lot of virus in them, uh, in their upper airways. They can be loaded with virus, which is uh, pretty interesting, but they don't, don't spread it nearly as well as this age group. As children get older, especially when they reach that adolescent stage, they are more likely, uh, even if they're much less likely to have complications from the illness, they are m- way more likely to spread it. Right. Um, And with that said, we do know that there are some children that do have complications from COVID-19 and it ranges from uh, some of those long hauler syndromes that we spoke of, but then also multi-system inflammatory syndrome. We've seen that in uh, this age group as well. Right. That complex immune mediated reaction. We don't fully understand it, but it can lead to multi-system organ failure and dysfunction and ultimately death. Um, That was the thing that was killing some children uh, last year at the initial outset of the outbreak. And so this is, this is really huge um, not only in terms of protecting these children, but also when we talk about stopping the spread, when we talk about if we have want to have any conversation about reaching herd immunity, this is a critical part in being able to vaccinate this age group. Yeah, absolutely. So, and mm-hmm. and and Mo, I, I just wanted to address why is it that we took so long to start the clinical trials with this age group? Why is it that there are far fewer participants in this kind of study compared to the larger clinical trials that uh, were rolling out, um, you know, in, in, in December and November mm-hmm. and uh, why, yeah, why is it, you know, only a thousand or 2000 participants in this? From what I understand, um, I'm not a vaccine expert, ladies and gentlemen, I will preface this statement with that. But, uh, from what I've read in conversation with researchers, um, such as Stephen Thomas that we've had on the program here, um, on health in Harlem, he was the lead investigator for the phase three trials, um, for Pfizer and, it comes down to the populations that were most impacted at the onset of this pandemic, right? Older individuals having more complications, older adults. Um, so that was definitely part of it and that we wanted to vaccinate and really one test these vaccines, right? And develop these vaccines and make sure that they were effective and safe for the most vulnerable populations first. And then uh, secondly, it is always kind of a trickle down effect. And you like to test these things in adults first <laughs> before uh, moving on to children, right? If there's going to be some risky stuff going on or adverse things that we're going to learn later, then, I mean, I would take that hit for my child, you know, <laughs> like be the experiment. Uh, yeah. I'll be the guinea pig for the future generations. And I think that was part of the thinking in starting uh, with older groups first and then having smaller you know, growing studies using or looking at children 
and how effective these vaccines and how safe they are in children. And so, yeah, so smaller numbers, but very encouraging results. So encouraging that the Food and Drug Administration said, hey, right, this is uh, we have this worldwide crisis we're dealing with. We're trying to get a handle on this. And this is safe now. Right. It's going to be we can use this for emergency reasons to vaccinate these these children um, so that we can protect them, but also so that we can at the at the larger societal level, get a better handle on this disease. And so just a, a huge development, um, more encouraging. This is a happy show, right? I, I always say yeah. on the program, I feel like we're kind of Debbie Downers and stuff sometimes and like very, uh, we talk about a lot of things. We talk real talk, but you know, there's a lot of things that we talk about and they can be unsettling, they can be discouraging. But I feel like this program, because of what we've seen with these vaccines, right? A lot of very promising results. And with that said, I think there's a reason to be very optimistic. So I hope we're coming across that way on the program <laughs> right now. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. So as far as hesitancy, right now, this is one thing we are going to encounter. Um, I will say that I was very encouraged yesterday because my daughter's teacher, uh, right at, when we were picking her up at school, she was like, yep, I, I um, stepped away for a break and she literally took her daughters to get vaccinated. Um, they are teenagers. So that was so dope to hear that, that she was on it. Um, and I was really happy to hear that they got it. It sounded like they got it so easily. Right. So this is available, ladies and gentlemen, some of the hangups and the barriers that individuals were experiencing and getting access to these vaccines right now, they are not really there. So uh, if if you, if this is on your heart, if you are going to get the vaccine, uh, there is a way, right? Um, pretty much everywhere. If you can get it in Georgia, I would say you can get it anywhere because we've had a lot of barriers um, down here that now seem to be much significantly improved. Um, and there's many different reasons for that, but uh, but we are in a much better place in terms of accessibility. And so it is something that I think we ought to think about and potentially take advantage of. And when we talk about, this is another really important uh, issue because when we talk about teenagers and them potentially getting this vaccination, right, this is going to be a decision that I'm hoping as parents out there, right? Uh, I don't, I don't want you to be too heavy handed with this. And what I mean by that is that I I'm hoping that you can have a conversation with your teen about this intervention. So if you are going to get the vaccine, uh, we'll start with that group that's going to get the vaccine. I think having a conversation with them about why, right, uh, the effectiveness of the vaccine, seeing how they feel about it as they are burgeoning young, right, adults, and they are going to be going out in the world making decisions for themselves, really picking their brain about their feelings about this vaccine, uh, about this intervention, and just getting, you know, getting into that uh, frame of thinking. Um, and even autonomy so that they can make this decision for themselves. I mean, honestly, if it was my daughter and she were 12, between 12 and 15, Imani, she would be getting the vaccine. <laughs> like, yeah, I wouldn't care what she, I can't say it. I'm not, I would care what she has to say. Um, you know, I might have to be happy handed. Uh, I'd be, she's getting the damn vaccine. She's getting the vaccine, period. She's getting it. That's so, what I would say. So why do you feel so I would try to understand, you know, make sure to, to address her concerns. Like, hey, you know, how do you feel about this? You have questions. 
What are your concerns? And we would have, I would really try to have that conversation with her to make sure that it's something that she wants and that she's in agreement with because they're going to be making decisions like this as they go forward. And we want them to be able to, to make those decisions, um, to be confident about those decisions, right? Make sure that they're making them all based on the, the right uh, information, reliable, factual right. information, right. Um, educating them about health decisions like this, really just fostering that decision-making in them. I think this is a really interesting and important opportunity for them. So, I mean, I'm not going to front though. I would be heavy handed with it. Like you don't want the vet. Yeah. Well, <laughs> like yeah. you want to stay in this house. <laughs> now let me stop. But it's, it's, I think it's an important, it's an important conversation to have. She's going to watch this. She's going to be listening to this episode later on. Yeah, exactly. And she's going she's gonna to be like, <laughs> dad, you said that I would have gotten yep. vaccinated anyway, but <laughs> Sometimes kids, uh, kids can be hard headed, but uh, but but you know maybe they have a good reason for their yeah yeah concerns gonna, or questions. Mm-hmm. I was just gonna say in in my age group, my friend group, you know people around me, um, I've I've experienced and overheard a lot of their hesitancy and their reasoning for why they're not going to get vaccinated, and mm. it really helped. Um, so I, I went through an internship uh, that was a, a partnership between um, a few different institutions in New York, um, including mentoring in medicine, Wild Cornell, Columbia, NYU, um, for uh, a downstate, I'm sorry, how could I forget? Um, and, and, and essentially, um, the, the purpose of this uh, internship was to educate and arm uh, people my age uh, with information to be able to combat the hesitancy and be able to launch social media campaigns in a more ga- grassroots type of approach. And um, they uh, gathered a, a cohort of 300 um, students and, and uh, just young adults, high mm-hmm. school students, college students, um, just people in, in the age groups that are the, the seem to be the problem areas right now in terms of getting vaccinated. Um, and they were able to get uh, 300 people in the first cohort. They're running their second cohort right now. We're actually mm-hmm. going to have them on the show next week. Uh, Dr. Holden, Dr. Morales, uh, a couple of the organizers uh, talking to us about that um, intervention and that idea. But because of that internship and because of this show, I had a lot of information to be able to actually engage in uh, with these people and be able to um, tell my friends, no, there's actually a lot of of people who went through the trials, you know, hundreds of thousands. And this Mm -hmm. wasn't a rush job. And this uh, this is a safe and effective vaccine. And even if you did have COVID, you should still get the vaccine. And Mm -hmm. It is easy. You could go and get in and out within an hour without a, a, a an appointment, and yep. uh, it's all over. Where do you where do you work? Let's go on vaccinefinder.nyc.gov and let's find you a site. There's 361 sites available for appointments right now in New York That's City, in the city, and 40 uh, different sites that are available for walk-in with no appointment, distributed mm. across all five boroughs. So um, 
I think like we we need to to kind of listen and be able to engage with people uh, who have opinions that that are saying that they don't want to get uh, vaccinated, especially at that age group, because educating them is going to have a network effect too. Um, yeah. You know, in the same way that it did with me, where I was able to talk to uh, 20 to 100 people, you know, if I had to estimate somewhere in that range of people my age who said that they didn't want to get vaccinated or didn't think that it was worth it or whatever mm -hmm. is the case and uh, address the fears and address the misconceptions and be able to try and persuade them to make the best decision based on factual info. Um, yes. And, and it's so tough to to combat the misinformation, you know, especially in the meme age and how quickly information disseminates in, in social media. Um, yes. You know, kind of, of, of plays on either side. Um, I think the only way to combat the misinformation is to to be armed with the right information and, and be able to have those kind of conversations. Um, yeah. As they arise, you know, you overhear it and you're like, wait a minute, let's have a convo about that because uh, that's not true. That's not the case, you know, and uh, and then, you know, I think healthcare providers in general really uh, stepped up and uh, demonstrated how they felt about the vaccine and their level of trust by mm -hmm. being the guinea pigs. So it's a huge shout out to people like you who. Uh, we're we're, we're you, among man. the first people who decided I'm going to go ahead and and get vaccinated, you know, despite the data not all being uh, solid at that time. You mm -hmm. know, at this point, you know, it's it's pretty it's clear cut. Everything is is right there for you. We want you to get vaccinated. You should get vaccinated. You should want to get vaccinated. Um, yes. And and uh, well, at the bare easy. minimum, give it a very good you have to yeah. give it some good thought. Um, you definitely, I, I strongly encourage everyone uh, out there to really just give it serious thought um, for yourself. And if you are the parent of a child 12 to 15 years of age, right, um, you should definitely give it thought for them as well. And actually, I think there'll be some interesting dynamics because I can imagine there will be some teens out there that uh, are armed with right information that will that might clash with their parents. They want to get the vaccine and the parents might be mm. hesitant um, or vice versa. Right. Yeah. We talked about that scenario, but I think uh, having these conversations and being open about concerns on both ends will be very valuable. And let's not try to stifle our children. Cause I can see right in that vaccine hesitant parent, if their teen wants to get it, mm. um, as we said that this is going to be a critical point because your child will be making decisions very shortly about their health. Um, I mean, even in most states, right, from a legal standpoint, when it comes to reproductive health, um, they ha already have some autonomy uh, in that regard. And so to stifle them and not allow them to make these decisions on their own uh, could be detrimental in the future. And especially considering this might not be the last pandemic that they deal with in their lifetime. I can almost guarantee it It will not be. There'll be other things that come down the pipeline. There'll be other uh, health challenges. And, you know, giving your 
teen or arming your teen or helping them develop the ability to make decisions for themselves um, based on, and we're talking informed decisions, right? That's the key, key word on this mm-hmm. program each and every week, informed decisions, right? Stifling your child's ability to, to do that might be doing more harm than good going forward. So with that said, and that's a perfect segue, thank you, Giorgio, into just as we begin to wrap up, I'm just going to go through how to evaluate online health information, because I'm pretty sure people, right, with this this new expansion of the emergency use authorization of the Pfizer vaccine uh, for individuals between 12 and 15 years of age, there are tons of questions being asked. There are people out there seeking information, which I, I think is great, but just make sure that the information that you are appreciating, right, is real information that is reliable and that it will help you in making that informed decision. And so there's some questions that you ought to ask yourself, even when you're listening to this program, let's say, right? Uh, You should ask yourself some questions. Who manages this information, right? The personal group that published whatever health information you're looking at online or whatever podcast you're listening to, um, right? Somewhere on that page or somewhere it should be clear who is behind that information, Um, It's very clear, right? We are health in Harlem, (laughs) both myself and Giorgio um, and Doris, who's still hanging in there with us. Um, Just had to shout you out real quick. I (laughs) I actually have a quick question um, about the the study that you discussed. Um, And maybe some of the listeners um, will have a similar question Um, Mm -hmm. for the age group 12 to 15. So being that it's 100 percent effective um, in preventing COVID-19, um, uh, and most children in that age group are asymptomatic, even though mm-hmm. there are, there are cases that you mentioned, um, of, uh, symptoms. Um, so does that mean that if they do get the vaccine that they, they're not, can, they can't actually spread COVID or they can't get COVID to spread it? So there is, and, and I think in this data set, right in this group in particular, that is still to be learned, right? We still don't know 100% if it if it stops the spread. Right now from this as you said 100% effective at reducing the risk of a, of acquiring SARS-CoV-2 um and therefore COVID-19, right? 100% effective up to this point. Um or 100% efficacy in this at least at this stage in the trial. Uh but when it comes to spread, spread is a different thing, right? There are Um, And that's why it's important to distinguish, right? This is a reduction in in developing COVID-19. And and so 100% effective at preventing COVID-19, it does not say that uh, individuals might have SARS and can spread it, right? Um, And so what what we've seen in adults, though, and more and more data is coming out showing that the mRNA vaccines not only do they stop you from developing COVID-19, but they also stop spread of SARS-CoV-2, right? So individuals that maybe come in contact with the virus, if they have the vaccine, not only won't they get COVID-19, but they're also less likely to spread the illness too. So there is data showing that the mRNA vaccine stopped the spread. Because looking at the data so far, like for instance, we see that this is um, in this age group, 12 to 15 years of age, more effective, right? If anything, I mean, it's preliminary data, but more effective at preventing COVID-19. We saw about the same rate of adverse effects, so the side effects, the achiness, the headache, the local tissue 
um, discomfort where the injection was given looks about the same as the 16 to 25 age group. So that looks the same, right? So equally, if not potentially more effective in this age group, about the same rate of adverse uh, effects up to this point, especially those very, very common ones we just mentioned. And I would imagine, right, and things, right, it, it can be different amongst children, um, even if there is a difference in a couple of years of age. Um, but I would imagine that it would stop the spread too. That's the best I can do. So there's no conclusive data that's still to be learned, but now I, I, I think that's going to be the case as we learn more. Yeah. And that answer I, I the just, question. Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Doris, I just took a look at the CDC's website um, and, and their information that they have on this question. And basically their official statement um, on this is that they're still learning how well the vaccines prevent um, you from spreading the virus. Uh, they don't specify by age group, uh, but generally say, speaking, uh, just like Mo said, the early data shows that the vaccine um, <clears throat> will help keep, keep people with no symptoms from spreading COVID-19, but they're still learning um, more about how the, uh, the vaccine protects people from spreading um, COVID to, to other people. But by reducing the, the symptoms, uh, they have shown that they have reduced the, uh, how contagious it is. And then the other big question is for how long? So they're not too sure how long COVID-19 vaccines would protect people. Um, and uh, Dr. Fauci has already kind of alluded to the possibility of a third shot um, in, in, the, uh, in the year range. Um, or boosters. Kind of, yeah, or a booster um, that might be needed. Uh, and if, if they do see that, the vaccines were not effective past that year or uh, needed to be uh, kind of boosted up in their um, in, in the number of antibodies, basically, and getting your um, immune response to, to be as robust, basically, by, by um, introducing more of the vaccine or introducing uh, a different type of, uh, of, of vaccine that would covered new variants. Yes. And so just going to pivot back to those questions, right? Evaluating the, the health information. Yeah. Um, so again, so who manages the, the information? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the first question you have to ask yourself. Who's behind the information? Um, is it an individual or is it a group? And what is their intent? Right. That is another question that we must um ask ourselves, are they trying to sell you something, right? If they're trying to sell you something, then there might be some undue persuasion. Things might be twisted a certain way. Is it for political purposes that this information is being presented by this individual or group, right? Information might be presented to you in a certain way to skew you to make uh, certain decisions. And so uh, just being mindful of where's who's behind the information and what is their intent or purpose? What are the letters at the end of the web address? Things ending in .gov or .gov or those ending in .edu are usually run by a university or educational institution or governmental institution. Hence, uh, the vast majority of times that will be more reliable sources of information. Um, 
If you see .org or .com at the end of a web address, it can be reliable or trusted site. But again, right, there might be some other intent behind um, that information being presented to you, not just right them just wanting to give you information so you can make decisions uh, off of. And also look at who's paying for the project, right? And again, what is their purpose? Um, there should be an about us section and it should clearly tell you if they're trying to sell you something or what is the intent behind their information. If you look at um, Health in Harlem on our homepage on Podbean, it tells you exactly, or even on Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts, our podcast description tells you exactly what our intent is, which again, is to just give you information so that you can live the healthiest and happiest and most productive life possible. That is our purpose. What is the original source of the information that was posted, right? Uh, in our podcast episodes, and even on here, we cite where we are quoting this stuff from. Um, in this episode, everything is coming straight from the FDA and uh, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control. But I'll tell you where we get our information so you can go and look at it for yourself, right? And make your own decisions based on that. Um, but that is very important, just making sure that, right, you know the source of that information, um, where it was originally published, and how to access it. Mm -hmm. And also, this information is changing daily. So the same places that we're getting our info, we're seeing the updates. You might, you might be listening to this show in four weeks from now. And by that time, there might be a lot more information that is available. Um, I'm sure we'll have another update by then that you should be listening to that as well. But, True story. But, but, God willing. Uh, but you, you could see that a lot of times when these things are, are published, especially the, uh, the graphs, uh, it, it'll tell you on the graph. Uh, the data is is um, going to be up to date up to a specific date or mm -hmm. between a certain date range. So things are going to change. And so by knowing the sources and going to them yourself, you'll be able to see the most up to date data as well. So we encourage you to go and, and check it out for yourself, not just to be critical thinkers, but also to get the most up to date info um, and satisfy your curiosities in that way. Yes, indeed. And also, you must ask yourself, how is the information reviewed before it gets posted? Right. So most health information publications have somebody with some background or expertise in the area or topic that is being public or that is being discussed. Um, so on our program, I am our medical director. My name again, Dr. Maurice Selby, emergency physician. And so I review the information that we talk about. We review it all together um, to make sure that it is reliable, incredible information. Um, we get our information from primary sources, and that's what reviewed, and that's what we post and talk about. And it should be noted on whatever website you're viewing or whatever you're listening to, right? It should be noted at some point. And then going to exactly what Giorgio said, how current is the information? Online health information sources should display a date when the information was posted or last reviewed or updated. Um, and if any site is asking for personal information, you must ask yourself, how would they use that information and how would they protect your privacy? Right. Um, and again, uh, be careful because there's tons of people out there with different motives, right. Um, and different reasons for putting information out there. Some with the political bent, some with a, the intent to sell you something, 
and some just really trying to confuse you. And that's one thing that we are not only dealing with misinformation, right? Misinformation is um, uh, spreading false or um, misleading information almost by accident, right? Where this stuff is spreading, sometimes we share it and we don't fully know that it's not truly correct. Uh, but there is disinformation out there. There are individuals out there willfully and purposefully spreading false information for various reasons. And we have to be mindful of that as we go forward. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I hate to wrap up so quickly, but we try to do this in a 60 minute span so that we could fit everything into our slot on WHCR. So I want to thank you all for tuning in and joining us uh, in this discussion. And we want it to be truly a discussion. So hit us up on Podbean, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, um, wherever you can find us, just uh, hit our comments and and let us know what you're thinking. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about the program, we definitely want to have a conversation with you. And I want to thank my man, Giorgio. Great oh, to see him you. this morning. Likewise. Always, always a pleasure, Mo. And That's uh, what's up. our special guest, Doris, for joining us this morning as thank well. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. This has been fun. I really enjoyed this. That's what's and, up. And as a secret secret between us uh spoiler alert uh doris will be joining us next week for a show as well so now you can't back down now <laughs> yeah, yeah it's expecting. too late it's too late everyone's gonna comment asking where's doris um, unless you make your appearance so uh so doris will be joining us thank you so much for the questions and uh looking forward to the week to come thank you mo Yes, indeed. And ladies and gentlemen, we also shout out Reed, uh, Anastasia, Ashley, Michael, Holmes, um, Ben Suferi. We should just shout out the rest of our Health in Harlem family, DJ um, out there. Ladies and gentlemen, this show is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas. Harlem, take care of yourself. <laughs>